Well, we want to welcome everybody to Spruce Grove Community Church today, but a special welcome to some of you visitors that have come today. We're excited you're here. And our prayer today is that God would touch your heart in a way that he's never touched it before. We pray that whatever stuff is going on in your journey, that Jesus today would make himself known to you and that he would touch that very thing. Can we agree with that today? Amen. Well, I just want to read a scripture before we get started. I've read this before, but I just love this scripture. Again, it's Psalms 27, and I just want to read part of it. It says this, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifice of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. So this morning as we come into the house, I know he's saying to us, just seek my face. Seek my face. So this morning, let's just posture ourselves and say, yes, Lord, I will seek your face today. So, Father God, today we come into the house of God, and we say yes to you. We say no to our problems. We say no to our discouragement. We, na- we say no to the things of the world. But today we say yes to you because you can change everything. You are a good God in Jesus' name. So let's worship him this morning. I want to say to you that, you know, the Scripture is full of warnings. But the warnings are not threats. They're not would-be insecure leaders who say, don't cross me, boy. Don't cross me, son, or I'll take you down a few notches. No, these aren't those kinds of threats. They're not from an egotistical giant, but they're, they're out of a compassion that says, if you only knew the things that I have held for you, if you only knew the things that I want to bring you into, You know, even the promise of Hebrews 12, when it talks about the shaking, it's not a threat. It's a promise. It's not a threat. It's a promise. He's saying, listen, I have appointed you and called you to be unshakable. Come on. I've called you to be unshakable. There's something in me that I want to establish in you that will make you unshakable immune, invulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And the process is simply to show you the things that are born of me and the things that are not, the things that can be shaken so that your heart can withdraw from the things which are easily shaken so your heart can adhere to the things that cannot be shaken. He's saying, listen, I want to establish you as the ambassadors of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I want to put inside of you the unapproachable light that is inside of me because I am the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And as you approach me, I will consume the things in you that can be consumed and I will transfer to you the light, the unapproachable light that is in me. And you will be my torches. You will be my firebrands in the earth. This is your destiny. 
This is your call. This is your honor. This is your privilege. As sons, you are sons of the king. Shine. I've called you to shine. 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 He will not relent. He will not stop. He will not hold back. We have entered into an equation where the Son has done everything that the Father required. And the Father has said to the Son, because you have done this, the kingdom is yours. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Father, through the Holy Spirit on earth, is making it ready for an inheritance. And we are part of that equation. We have entered into the grace of God by the obedience of one, which is Jesus. And he is going to do it. The Father is going to do it because of the faithfulness of the Son. It is, it is assured. (laughs) So, Father, we say, let the grace that you have determined to be poured out in this hour to create a generation who will follow after you, the generation of Jacob who will seek your face. Lord, let that grace come upon this generation. Let that generation rise in this day, in this hour. Lord, send the wind. Send the fire. Send the wind. And send the fire. Oh, we believe he is going to have it all. And, you know, there is a there is this sound of discouragement that has come upon many in this day. And it is an old accusation that the apostles reference when they said that certain voices will rise up and say, where is the promise of his coming? And it says, listen, everything has continued as it has always been, ups and downs and cycles, but I'm telling you that's a lie. Because we are dwelling today in a day where there has never been such a clear revelation of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And it is increasing. It is absolutely increasing in the earth. There has never been a better day than right now. And I want to tell you, in Jesus' name, hold fast to the promise. Hold fast to that promise. Fight this fight. Cast down that lie. This is the day of promise. And a great wind is about to blow in Alberta, in Canada, in the earth. And you will live to see it. You will live to see it. You will live to see it. Can you say amen? Can you say amen? Yes, Lord. 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 Yes, Lord.
Well, listen, we've stepped into a lane that we could stay in for a very long time. But you know what? The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And what, what Paul meant when he said that, he said, you can stop prophesying in every time. Don't worry, you're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit. You are autonomous in this sense. You can release the Holy Spirit at will. You can release the prophetic. You can release a realm of worship. You can release a realm of intercession. But then there's times to just step out of it and step into something else. So we have a very special guest today we want to give some room to, and I'm going to sh- introduce him in a few minutes. last couple of days, I was with Art Lucier, who's speaking in Stony Plain this morning, and Dean Briggs. Dean and I met in Saskatoon when we were brought together on the, uh, the core team for the, uh, the Battle for Canada, and I just have so appreciated his heart. He is a strategic thinker in his gifting, apostolic. He's been brought on. He, he ran with Lou Angle and still runs with Lou Angle, but he was a right-hand man for the call in the United States for so many years. And now he's been brought on to be a walk with Mike Bickle and the team at IHOP as a strategic, uh, you know, implementer of, you know, the building process going forward as they're transitioning into a new uh, wineskin. And God is, you know, renewing them in terms of what their destiny and calling is. But it's been a real pleasure as I, every time I listen to him, I just deeply appreciate the wisdom, the, the marks of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming through him. And uh, he always tells me he appreciates me, and I love that. But I admire this man so much. And I want you, as he comes forward, to just open your heart. Really, really open your heart. Last time he was with us, I think he left a deposit here. And I believe he's going to do the same thing again today. So will you please welcome Dean Briggs. Good morning. morning. It's great to be here. Um, uh, It's been a short period since I was here last. I don't think it's even been a a full year. But I... uh, I remember feeling and commenting at the time, and I feel it again, so I'm going to comment again. As I've gotten to know Mark and, and being in this house, um, I do a fair bit of traveling and speaking, and it's amazing um, how rare it is to be in a place where you feel the spirit of revelation is active and alive. It's unfortunate that um, the church is often quite closed to revelation. But one of the things I have appreciated so much about Mark is, uh, um, in America there used to be a um, stock uh, advising firm called E.F. Hutton. You probably didn't see these commercials in Canada, so this is about to fall flat, but I'm going to tell it anyway. For, for many, many years, uh, through the 70s and 80s, their whole branding was, um, you, you'd see in, in these different scenarios over a series of commercials, in these crowded public places, uh, two folks would be talking about different stock strategies, and then one of them would say, well, my, my advisor is E.F. Hutton. And what E.F. Hutton says, and, and in this crowded room, it would all fall quiet, and you'd see everyone lean in. And, and, and the phrase was, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. When Mark Brisbois speaks, I listen. Every time he speaks, I hear a spirit of revelation on his life. 
And I think it fills this place and it's a part of your purpose to bring revelation of the kingdom into Edmonton. And so I'm not going to let Mark outpraise me. I honor this man. Uh, turn to Genesis 2. I want to talk about law and grace. We just, uh, we just sang, uh, and the brother had a, a key word when we're singing about let everything that can be shaken be shaken. There's a sobriety to that. Uh, but I actually look forward to the shakings, because I believe one of the, 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 the key shakings that the Holy Spirit longs to do and bring, when we, when we have kind of a sober response to the thought of shaking, it's not wrong, it's right, but we often do a gut check on how moral we are. And we're concerned that the shaking might leave us exposed or that our life won't line up in terms of a holy conduct code. But I believe that the shaking the Lord wants to bring is to our understanding of what holiness really means. How it's produced and the things we depend on in place of Christ. Years ago, Paul Cain, he had a phrase that he said over and over again because the the Lord had spoken it to him. He said... um, To a people without mixture, I'll give my spirit without measure. And again, we we hear through a certain hermeneutical lens. We hear through a paradigm. Paradigms and worldviews are so powerful because they form the grid by which we interpret data. So I can hear ABC and you can hear ABC. And another person can hear ABC, but depending on our paradigm, we're going to interpret ABC differently. It's the same ABC. It's like uh, if I'm in Edmonton and I'm trying to get to the Expo Center, but what I have is a map of Calgary. I have a map of a city, and I know it's in the you know, northeast area or wherever the Expo Center is, I don't know. But I don't actually have the right map for the job. So I can't just say, well, I've got a map and I've got a big city and I've got a place to go. My, my worldview isn't actually equipped to get... If the map is my worldview, I'm not actually equipped to get where I need to go unless I have the right worldview. So when Paul Cain said that, for years, I think... A generation took that in and thought, I need to be without mixture or I can't have his spirit without measure. But as I understand it, Paul privately told a friend of mine what he felt like the Lord was saying was, when my people, when, when uh, it actually had to do with the mixture of law and grace. To a people without mixture in utter dependence on Christ... I'll give my spirit without measure. These become challenging because we really all love Jesus and we want to follow him and we want to obey. But we're so entrenched, our paradigms are so steeped 
in a careful uh, religiosity that has the right heart but the wrong map. We really want to be holy, and that's good. We're called to be holy. The question isn't, are we called to be holy? It is, what is holy? And how is holiness produced? Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, verse 1, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work, what He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Genesis is a critical book because... The beginning of something tells us what the whole story is really about. In the ancient Near East, it wasn't just Hebrew thought. All the cultures of the ancient Near East, the, the cultures of civilization, the, 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 the cradle cultures uh, of creation, all had this understanding, I believe it was given by God, but it was this understanding that the beginning or the origin of a thing is deeply instructive of its ultimate purpose. And so theologians have extracted that into an exegetical principle called the principle of first occurrence. I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's whenever in Scripture you see a word mentioned for the first time, it is critical to establishing the tone and understanding and DNA, if you will, of every other occurrence you'll see later. It's that seed principle that everything comes from the seed and God multiplies, which is a Genesis principle, God multiplies after the kind of a thing. So when you see the seed of a concept or an idea or a word for the first time, that is the seed that informs all the other times you see it. And here in Genesis 2, right at the beginning of the story, creation has just been finished. And we are introduced early on to two key concepts, two key words. The first occurrence. The word is holy and the word rest. It says God rested on the seventh day. That word rest is the root word that is later translated Sabbath. So we have two key principles in the first three verses of chapter 2. Holiness. And the Sabbath. It's interesting also that the word holy here is not used for the rest of Genesis. In fact, we don't see the word holy again until Exodus, which is about 2,500 years later in the storyline... When holiness starts to be applied more, the word holy, the concept of holy, starts to be applied more and understood more. So for the entire book of Genesis, this is the only passage that uses the word. And this is important because we need to consider the context of what was said in Genesis 2, what I just read, because this is pre-fall. This is pre-sin. This is pre 
ugliness, murder, mistakes, failure. Actually, everything is in pristine condition. And yet God said He made something holy, but right there we have a problem because that's not what we think holiness is. We think holiness is a moral posture in contrast to a sinful posture. So when we say we want to be holy, we default to a code of conduct that looks like clean living. But there was no unclean living at this point. And yet God made something holy. It was a profoundly pristine, innocent, sinless state. And yet out of that, the Sabbath was made holy. As a first occurrence, other holy things must be understood by this context in Genesis 2. Not the other way around. Only the holiness of God is superior. But the Sabbath being made holy was emblematic of Him imputing His nature into a moment in time. Now this is interesting because time is how we traffic through life. So God actually creates an intersection point of an otherwise abstract... He's a person... But he's abstracted to our existence. But right from the very beginning, he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to make sure you can intersect with my existence. I'm not going to be outside of time. I'm going to take who I am and what I am and infuse it into a moment so that you can pass through that moment on a regular basis. And you can know who I am, intersect with my nature and my character. I'm going to take who I am and time, a moment in time is going to look like me. And you can, you can uh, interface with that. In other words, what God is, utterly inscrutable and incomprehensibly holy, an actual point in time became. And God embodied himself and his own person in our dimensional reality. Now that is prefiguring, right in Genesis, by making the Sabbath holy, he's telling us that he's going to do it again. He's, I'm an author, I do, I I write nonfiction, but I also write fiction. And a, a good fiction author, by that I'm implying that I am one. A good fiction author does what's called foreshadowing. The, the, the mystery genre is the best of this, but really all genres have aspects of foreshadowing where there's clues scattered so that by the time you find out the butler did it with the candlestick in the living room at the end of the story, right? You have an aha moment. It's an epiphany because you've already had clues and if you've interpreted the clues rightly, you have the satisfaction of knowing the author's intent before he had to spell it out. God is the author of history, the author and perfecter of salvation of our souls. He he really tells good stories. 
So over and over and over again, from the very beginning of the book all the way through, I think it was R.W. Schombach said, you can give me any book of the Bible, any chapter of the Bible. I'll take what's written there. I'll drive a stake in it and run all the way to the cross. I can do that. Everything in Scripture is telling us the great story of God pointing to Christ. And the Sabbath is that. Now let me, let me just tell you on the front end, I'm not advocating that we all become Seventh-day Adventists. That's not my point here. It's not at all my point. In fact, it would miss the point if that's what you heard. The, the day itself, the sanctity of the, sac, of, of the Sabbath, is as an act of sacramental, peop, uh, sacramental grace for the people of God. It's not a legalistic holy day of the week. It's not carried out by human effort. This is what Jesus said in Mark 2. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, either Jesus is our rest or there is no rest. And Sunday is largely an irrelevant, inferior habit if we look to the day to supply what only He can bring. If I give my legalistic devotion to the seventh day of the week rather than the experience of Christ every day, then I have relegated God to one day. And that needs to be shaken. So what made this day holy? What was God's part and what was man's part? Because we know that we're supposed to be holy as He is holy. And so now, I just want to stick a little grain of sand in your little oyster brain here and have this bother you for a while. Not that your brain is little. Oysters are... Anyway. When we stand in the mysteries of God, all of our brains are little. What was God's part in this equation of making the Sabbath holy and what was man's part? The answer is everything and nothing. All of it was God's part and none of it was man's part. And this is part of the first occurrence principle because man is created by the end of the sixth day which means he draws his first breath of full life on the seventh. See, the picture of the seven days of creation is, God said, I'm done, my work is finished, and he Sabbathed, he rested, and he said, this is the holy day, and Adam goes, I'm alive on that day. It's the first complete day of human life. And it is entirely grounded in the space and grace and reality of God Himself intersecting with our time, our dimension, and that is where Adam came alive. Everything in the gospel emerges from this insight. God's action and choice to rest 
form a sort of predestination for man. That we would understand in all of our striving and the curse of sin, all of our struggle, and even that which was added later in the law, which actually only increased the struggle. It confirmed that there is a standard beyond your capacity and if you try to satisfy that standard, you will be worn out. You will never find rest for your soul. So many of us are trying to be holy and we are banging our head against a wall and ending up with massive spiritual migraines day after day after day. And because we do not understand the magnitude and generosity of God, we come out of banging our head against the wall thinking, I just got to try harder. And we try harder and we fail again because only God can do what God can do. And so the cycle is meant to break us. The cycle is meant for me to finally look at the wall where the you know, impression of my head is and say, I'm not getting anywhere. And so that, that, that kindness of God at the very beginning of the story saying, I'm making this day holy and I'm actually prophesying in this reality, one day I'll make you holy. So that when the promise is given, be holy as I am holy. See, we read that with the wrong map and we read it, be perfect as I am perfect. Be morally pure as I am pure. But holiness so far surpasses perfection and purity. Holiness at at its root actually means other than. It's like take a worm and take a seraphim, right? The the glory of six wings, eyes all around, probably about five times as big as this entire building. See, we have the wrong picture of these guys, you know? They're about six, seven foot tall. They have some wings, a little glowing disc of light. No, you talk about the, the, the cherubim and seraphim before the throne, and they are... Awesome in splendor beyond. If one of them landed right here, we'd all fall on our face and think we were worshiping God. Because their glory, their size, their, 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 their stature before the throne is so significant. And yet those guys all have eyes focused on Him. In fact, when Scripture describes them being covered with eyes, there's eyes on their wings. And it talks about them hiding their face, but they can't actually hide their face because their wings sprout new eyes. I halfway imagine that when they were created, all of them had just one set of eyes. But you can't be before the throne of God and not look. And so every time they hide their face because they're overwhelmed by the glory, the glory is so beautiful that it demands more eyes. And so they just keep growing eyes so that they are perpetually covering their face, but they're perpetually beholding. And every time they behold, they fall on their face and say, holy, holy, holy. And those creatures, the difference between a worm and 
you know, I mean, just have you ever gone fishing, right? Just a little ugly worm or cockroach and a cherubim or seraphim, and you have not begun to approach the difference between a seraphim and God. He's other than. There are no words. There is no comprehension. He's inscrutable. He's beyond. He's glorious. And of all the creatures before the throne, none of them are distracted. There's not one wandering eye in the bunch. There's not one cherubim who's covering his face and he's checking his Instagram account. He's thinking, I think there's something better over here. I can't wait for the new game on Xbox to come out. Or I've got my to-do list or whatever it is. No, when you're in that kind of glorious presence, everything consumes you. And you're leaning into comprehend the incomprehensible because it's so fascinating and beautiful. That's holy. That's why all they can say is, we don't understand. You're other than. Everything created is just a bare glimpse. It's just the dimmest picture. But we got to look at you because you define reality. You're the only map that matters. You're the only understanding that is worth beholding and comprehending. So holy, 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 let us look again. I fall on my face, but I can't stay there because i got to look again. So when, when we're told, be holy as I am holy, it is so far beyond act right. It is so far beyond. Clean up your life, you scumbag. That's not how God's thinking at all. He's thinking, I intersected time with my Sabbath reality because I want you to get drawn into my time and my reality. I want you to get caught up into a mode of existence that is so far beyond the little incremental improvements that we try to bring to our own life when we think, I've got to be holy. I've got to be holy. I've got to be holy. And now I'm entering into my labor, not his rest. I'm going somewhere with this, I think. Go to Romans 6, 11. 11, 6, sorry. I'll just read it to you. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's pretty self-evident. I mean, that's like, I can't really argue with that logic. If A is not equal to B, then B is not A. It's about as simple of a formula. Otherwise, A would be B. So, if it really is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, by definition, grace isn't grace. So when you talk about entering into rest, the contrast to rest is work. If he has created a day, a state of rest, then it is in contrast to work, which means rest is the work of grace. It's not the work of work. Holiness existed before sin, not in contrast to it. This is the paradigm shift we have to have. 
If holiness existed before sin, not in contrast to it, then you can completely divorce yourself from sinful actions and thoughts and yet never enter the mystery of holiness. And I want to be holy because that's what he's like. I don't just want to be good. Good is included in holy. Pure is included in holy. Transformational, powerful, understanding. There's all these things that are included in holiness, but if I separate out any of the lesser elements and aspire to only be that, I am falling so far short of his ultimate intention to transform me into his image. So in Romans 11.6 says, if it's works, it's not grace. There, otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. There's a mixed grace idea that is so common to our aspiration to be good disciples. It's good and right for us to want to obey to lean in, to follow, to lay aside every weight of sin that so easily besets, to press in hard, to give our all. There's so much of that that's good, but it's so tricky because it bleeds into a spirit of striving. Where in small and subtle ways, we turn grace into a carrot and stick message. And rather than the carrot that draws us forward, it's the stick that drives us. And you can recognize a mixed grace message when there's a carrot and a stick. And that's a mixture that Romans eleven six 6 says, if, it's, if you start to get that mixture, it's not grace anymore. If you're mixing works in, and you're beating yourself or somebody else to drive you forward, then you haven't yet found the full enticement of simply gazing on Him and entering into His reality of rest for your life. Now this is a lifetime process because we so easily slip back. It's why Hebrews 3 and 4 said, Strive to enter that rest. See, there is work, but the work is to believe. That's John 6. They say... How do we do the works of God? Jesus said, here's the works of God, that you believe in Him who sent me. So there is a work, but the work is, I will not work. I will rest and believe that He has supplied all my needs according to His riches and glory. Mixed grace carrots. Say, if you confess, you'll be forgiven. If you do right, you'll be accepted. If you act holy, you'll be holy. And you know what? In isolation, every one of those statements can be true, but the problem is the culture they create, the mindset and the map they give us is, if I do, then God will fulfill His word. Rather than, God is faithful, He has laid out life before me, and I get to simply say yes and enter into that. Failure to perform means you'll lose your fellowship, your forgiveness, or if worse comes to worse, maybe even your salvation. And this may be true religious news, but it's hardly good news. And when the angels came because the Sabbath of God was born as a baby, they said, peace on earth 
goodwill to men. Behold, we proclaim glad tidings, good news. And the word is evangelion. It's the evangelist. We all have to be saved continually by being reminded this is really good news. He announced peace while we were actually still at war with him. Behold, I bring you glad tidings, good news, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. God's heart for you is for you to enter into his reality and he's so committed to it that he announces peace for you and friendship with you and love for you while you were yet sinners, while you hated him, while you were at war with him, while you were like this, come at me God. He says, I love you, you're my friend, step into my rest. I'm going to close with a, a picture that you guys just gave me this morning. You know, Zephaniah 3 says, God is in your midst. He surrounds you with love. He quiets you. He, sing, he exults over you with singing. And the word exult is, is way more than what we hear. You know, we hear exult and it's like, yeah! Exult in the Hebrew is a wild spinning dervish dance it's like God in his love and affection for you is losing it a little bit and just spinning like crazy like I love this person and we got a picture of this this morning where's the the young lady yeah right there oh it's awesome it was awesome now if you as a speaker I might get this a little bit more but if you are ever on the front row you know the fear of the flag wavers. <laughs> I'm standing there. I'm like, oh, okay. You know? It was awesome. I loved it. Because they were abandoned and waving. I was looking over here at Ken thinking he's about to be decapitated. This brother was right here and waving real strong. And I'm thinking, have they measured that flag length? Because I'm not sure. Ken never even, it didn't even phase him. He's so used to it. But I'm feeling a breeze on the front row, right? There's a breeze of this holy abandonment and the flag waving and all of that. And as I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, Zephaniah 3. God's spinning and twirling and exulting. And she comes up and stands right here. And she, I mean, I'm feeling the wind and the waves and, and her son comes right here. He just sits there. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there. And I'm thinking, if I tried to get at him, I would be decapitated in the process. <laughs> I'm thinking, I would have to go through, I mean, I know those are just flags, but those would be dangerous enough, much less if it was the sword of the Lord. In terror and fury, as he spins around us with love, and all we do is sit there and we say, I'm going to rest in you and your love, and no weapon formed against me can prosper. All those who rise up against me will fall. See, that passage in Isaiah, we, we quote that, but you have to read a few verses before when it establishes that he will bring righteousness to his people and it's out of imputed righteousness that we sit at his feet in a position of rest and the enemy can't touch us no weapon formed can touch us 
These are the things that I want to see the Holy Spirit shake in us. Down to our core. That fleshly striving that would think I could add anything to the holiness of God. All I can do is receive. And He changes me day by day. And I just crawl up under His protection. Let Him love on me. And the enemy better watch out. He may have a front row seat to my life, but he doesn't dare move forward. Let's stand. I just want to, uh, it's, it's real simple prayer. Uh, I actually, forgive me, I've, I've got to catch a flight with Art. We're heading to Saskatoon and uh, I've got to bolt out of here in about five minutes. But I just want us to, if you're feeling stirred of the Lord, you want to have that childlike heart that just comes and and steps under his love that wants to receive in a new way you want a new map for your life you want a new paradigm you want maybe you've been walking in this for a while but maybe you've incrementally lost some of the freshness of that revelation i believe there's a spirit of revelation in this house and i just want us to just position our arms as in open to the lord god we just receive we receive We don't have to strive to attain or gain or win what you have already accomplished and given us. So we say yes. We we accept. We receive. We lay down and sleep in your presence. We ask that your Sabbath would become our daily existence. Let us be holy as you are holy and enter into the mysteries of your rest. Let the Sabbath be for us, not us for it. Let that, let that really hit us. God, we, we want to throw away our map of righteousness according to the law. And we want to live life with the map of the mystery of Christ and righteousness by grace. God, I bless this people. I bless them to drink this word and ponder it and let it feed their souls and bring renewal to all of our lives. And God, I just put myself right in the middle of that. I, I, cover us with the shadow of your wing. Teach us the secrets of the hidden place. Dance and twirl over us with love. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.